it because it's really Jesus Christ, who is the gospel, has authority over us. And so let's read it and see how what God's going to teach us. It's Galatians 2, verses 11 to 16. This is the word of our God. It says, When Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. This is God's word, it is true, and he gives it to us because he loves us. Let's pray. Father, I know all of us here can relate to Peter. We, we are afraid of what people think, and so we, we act differently. And so I pray that as we see the gospel lived out, that you would use our time together in your word to show us how the gospel teaches us and trains us to live, um, live in light of who you are and what you've done. I ask that you would send your spirit to show us Jesus, um, to give us the power to obey, and the desire to do so because we see that you have first loved us. So may your grace reign in us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Martin Luther makes this huge claim as he's commenting on our passage here that uh, the truth of the gospel is the main article of Christian doctrine. It's the foundation. And it's because of that that we have to know the truth of this gospel really well teach it to other people, and beat it into our heads repeatedly. <laughs> so that's what we're doing. Is I, I mean, I get the job of beating. <laughs> He's saying that the, the, the core of the gospel, justification by faith alone, all right, we understand it intellectually, but to get it to look, um, to work it out into our lives so other people can see it, it's, it's, well, it's impossible. We need to hear it again and again until it starts to bear fruit, uh, start to have its transforming work in us. All it's saying is that we need to keep the main thing the main thing, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, because that's where the power of God lies. And so you see that phrase here in chapter 2, the truth of the gospel. You see it twice. You saw it in chapter 2, verse 5, where Paul doctrinally defended the truth of the gospel in Jerusalem before the apostles and before these false teachers. He says, this is what it is. This is what we looked at last week. It was more doctrinal. And then this week, as you hear it in 2.14, we're going to be shown that the truth of the gospel has demands on your behavior. It really, it's, it is by faith alone, but the, the faith that comes to you, that we live alone, right, doesn't remain alone. We, the, the gospel changes the way we live. 
And so not only should our doctrine line up with the truth, so should our conduct. And that's what this whole standoff between Peter and Paul is about. Peter, are you going to submit to the truth of the gospel even when it hurts? All right, and so let's, let me illustrate it for you because this will help. I think it will help uh, us see exactly what's going on in this situation as Peter is, is acting like a racist. Um, and, and there's division in the body of Christ in the beginning of the early church. But it also shows us a principle that we're going to work out. So let's talk about racism. But let's talk about it about us. Right, written into the fabric of our, the history of our country right, is racism. I mean, we can talk about the good old days as, as we were a Christian nation. and I mean, there, there is truth to that, but there was an awful lot of sin going on as well. All right, so you've got to go all the way back to the 1700s. It's going to be a brief history lesson in the American colonies. When the Puritans came, and they came over from overseas for religious freedom, one of the things they did, you can't start with racism in the South. We have to start in New England. And one of the things they did in Massachusetts, in this document called the Body of Liberties, which our Bill of Rights is based on, by the way, there was this statement where Christians, I mean church people, said, that we have the right to take strangers, talking about Africans and Native Americans, as slaves because of what it says in the Old Testament. Right. So it's not, it's not Mississippi, this is Massachusetts. In a largely Christianized society. And so way, the way that worked out too then in the American colonies, the way... The way you're going to be involved in society publicly, uh, civil rights, political rights, the way you're even able to vote was all through the church. And so what it meant was, is if you weren't a Christian, or at least pretending to be a Christian, you couldn't vote. And the way that worked out then in, in our history, I mean, these two things are going to go side by side, is like, especially down in, in Virginia, laws were passed that, that the African slaves couldn't be baptized into the church because they were baptized into the church they could vote, and then they could vote for their freedom. All right, and so there's all it was a mess. They were not living in light of the truth of the gospel. And so as one pastor back then would argue, we should evangelize the blacks, of course, but because it makes them better workers. Just within the fabric of our country, the history, you know, there, there's a lot of dirty laundry. I mean, the, the prominent view was, yeah, they might be separate. I mean, they might be equal, but they should remain separate. Division. Very much reflective of, of the division between Jew and Gentile. They would say things like, yeah, Jesus loves them and died for them, but they can't eat at my dinner table, much less the Lord's table. I know it's easy to take shots at history because we weren't there, but most likely we would have been right along with them. But how would you tell them that they're wrong? How would you confront that, where it's a whole system designed to keep particular groups of people separate based on one criteria, the race? 
I mean, we today, and secularly would say, yeah, dehumanizing people is wrong, racism is wrong, um, it's in the Bill of Rights, we should just not do that. But what authority would you use? Western civilization? You know, civilized people don't do that? I mean, the foundation of civilization, Plato, Aristotle, they wrote that some men were just born to be slaves because they, aren't, they don't have the same capacity for reason that we do. That's Plato and Aristotle. Right? And so that's why all this stuff, as you come to the 1900s, the 1950s, why this Bible translation called the Cotton Patch Bible was trying to get the, these truths into the life of Jim Crow South, what read our passage like this, in spite of all this, when Peter came to Albany, I had to rebuke him to his face because he was clearly in error. For before the committee appointed by James arrived, he was eating with the Negroes. But when they came, he shrank back and segregated himself because he was afraid of the whites. And he even got the rest of the white liberals to play the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. It's pretty blunt. But all that to say is that when Paul stands up and says, Peter, you're not living in line with the truth of the gospel, He's saying that racism, the things that divide us, not even anything that divides us, is a gospel issue. It's conduct that ignores, racism is conduct that ignores the truth that Jesus died for people of all tribes, all tongues, all nations. It doesn't, everybody, from any category you can think of, there are, you will find representatives in the church, people for whom Christ died. And so Paul says, I told Peter to his face. He wasn't, he wasn't acting out on the faith he claimed to believe. So that's what I want us to think about this morning, is that the gospel has social implications. I could say more simply that your understanding of the doctrine of justification by faith can be seen by whom you eat with, who you're willing to eat with, who I'm, I'm picking on me here, right? This is, this is all of us together. Because whether you believe in grace is going to be seen in who you are willing to hang out with, who you're willing to, to break bread with, um, who you're willing to share a, a cup with, right, to share germs with. Right. I mean, you see how the truth of the gospel makes demands on all of our relationships? I mean, if you apply this to Christ, and we're going to take communion together, to us as a church, sorry, if we're going to take communion together. And it's a meal with Christ and his church. Together, all together, we are part of God's family, sitting all at the same, the same table. And Paul would say, if there are people we're not willing to eat at this table with together, we stand condemned by the gospel. You see the difference? And so that's why I'm saying we need, we need to work out this principle that Paul is teaching because it has vast implications for how we live and how we, how we work on the sin that still is present in our lives. Because right, th those of us who are Christians are a lot more comfortable saying the gospel is the power of God for salvation for the lost. But Paul's showing us here that it's a, the gospel is the power of God still working out our salvation, but it's worked out in your life right here, right now, today. And your relationships with your, with your spouse, with your 
parents, with your kids, with your coworkers. Right? It, it, it just goes out and permeates. It's meant to get into every nook and cranny, light that shines in every part of the darkness in our hearts. So let's look at this. Let's look at this uh, confrontation or this standoff. And it had to be really uncomfortable. The equivalent would be a, a, a congregational meeting where somebody is standing up in the middle of the meeting and telling someone else that you are sinning, brother. And, and if you've ever been, I hope you haven't, but you, some of you may have been in those situations, you know they can fall apart very quickly. Anger, rage, <laughs> fists. How do they get there? Well, let's look at Peter. We've got to make sense of this. Peter comes from Antioch, up up to Antioch from Jerusalem. And what we're told is that he's completely comfortable as a Jew eating with Gentiles. And as we looked at for the last couple weeks, there was a historic divide because of these clean laws, where Jews by culture and by choice, and partly because of their way of working out God's law, they just wouldn't eat with Gentiles. so, So one rabbi would put it this way, in their day, don't eat with them for their works are unclean. It was scandalous for a Jew to eat with Gentile, and Peter was, until these other people showed up, completely comfortable with it. Which is incredible, if you know the the story, the history of the church. How did Peter get there? It wasn't a quick process, but he did have a vision, we're told in Acts 10. We'll go through some church history. Right. In Acts 10, Peter was, had this dream where all these animals started floating past him. Uh, reptiles, birds, all these forbidden foods. Right? It's a good dream when you're dreaming about food. <laughs> and, but for Peter, these were all these animals that he was forbidden to eat by Old Testament law. And in his dream, God was saying, Peter, eat. And Peter was saying, God, what you have called common or unclean, I have never eaten in my life. And God responded, what I, what I have declared clean is clean, so eat it. Right? God has made clean, do not call common. And it was all getting him ready to go have dinner with the Gentile, a Roman centurion. And so Peter gets his invitation to go over and explain the gospel to Cornelius. And he tells Cornelius that everyone, he doesn't just divide by race or anything. He said, anyone who believes on the name of Jesus might receive forgiveness of sins. And to Peter's astonishment, the Holy Spirit falls down, and they start praising God. They start speaking other languages. I mean, they could not argue against the fact that these people were demonstrating that Jesus was there with them. He saved them. And so they immediately baptized them, and it changed Peter's behavior. He's he started eating dinner at the, on the other side of the aisle. Right? He, started breaking, he started living down the walls that Christ had broken down. So that's, that's the Peter that we have in Antioch here. I mean, he's, he's got stories to tell about Jesus. He's talking to the Gentiles. They're eating, they're drinking, they're laughing. It's probably both meals and the Lord's Supper because they would have blended together a lot more. And then these people from Jerusalem came up, from James, it says. <coughs> and Peter completely wimped out. And this is what, it's got to drive you nuts. Why would he do that? 
It tells us he was afraid of what they thought. But he brought all the Jews. He even brought Barnabas, who was a missionary to the Gentiles, who had been doing this for even longer. So why in the world would Barnabas go along with this? And especially if you, you follow Peter's story, it's not like he was a wimp before yeah. on this issue. Earlier in Galatians, he was with Paul. Right? We read that last week. On Acts chapter 11, when the circumcision party came to him and said, how can we you associate and eat with a Gentile. He said, well, God saved them. How can I not? He wasn't afraid then in, in Jerusalem. Why was he so afraid? Because what's going on is there's essentially now two different tables at the church, the Gentile table and the Jew table, and they were separate. And if a Gentile wanted to come eat with a Jew, they were saying you had to follow these laws to sit with us. What was he so afraid of? Because this is what, this is what I'm, I'm going to try and do some uh, exegesis here to show you. I don't think Peter's just being a wimp. I think he's got good reasons for withdrawing. Because, yeah, he's a sinner. We're all inconsistent. I think that's part of it. But we have to wonder, who are these circumcised? Who is the circumcision party? I mean, either they're Christian Jews or non-Christian Jews. And if they're Christian Jews, Peter's already stood them down. You read that in Acts 11 and Acts 15. So I don't think he's necessarily scared of those people. I think what's happening is these people from James have come up and told Peter that you are eating with the Gentiles is hurting the church in Jerusalem. It's going to... You might not have thought about this before, but the, the attitude and atmosphere in Jerusalem, I mean, because Jews and Gentiles were eating together, is that these new Jewish Christians were being persecuted. That's what happened to Stephen. The law, these customs, these taboos were threatened, and Stephen was stoned. Jews were coming to, to faith, and they were being ostracized, persecuted. And so I think what's going on here is that James, some people from James have come up, whether James sent them or he's, you know, they're claiming that, I don't know. They're just saying, Peter, your eating with Gentiles is hurting your brothers. The reputation's gotten out. It's doing damage. Some of your friends, some people you know are being beaten, uh, kicked out. So that's why Peter's afraid. Because there are people suffering for Christ. And if you read the whole story, the end of Galatians, I think it helps make sense. I mean, Paul says that people are wanting to be circumcised, wanting to circumcise the Gentiles because they don't want to suffer for Christ. And so Peter's being a wimp, yeah. He is being a racist. But it's also somewhat out of compassion, which makes us a lot more complicated. Because... Would you eat with somebody that you know your association with um, is going to bring harm to someone you love and care about? Maybe even killed. Would you eat with someone knowing that your actions could cause suffering to another Christian if it's just a matter of eating and drinking? I, mean, I think this is what helps make the best sense of what's going on here. Is Peter turning to everyone and saying, let's keep these food laws for now and just until things calm down in Jerusalem? 
so our brothers and sisters in Christ aren't harmed. I mean, that, I can't think of any other reason why Barnabas would be led astray as well. I mean, sure, maybe, maybe it's just a Jewish pride that, that, that's stubborn. I think that's probably part of it because we all have pride. But basically it was this. The culture, the way of life is being threatened and we don't want to mess with it. It was similar to the attitude of saying in, here in our country, let's not eat with people of color here because we know it's going to rile people up and it's going to get hard. That's what's happening. Does that make sense? Peter is acting like a racist. He is pulling back from people different than him. It is hypocrisy. He's living, he was living like a Gentile, now he's pretending to live like a Jew again. He's pretending he's something he's not. He's living as if Christians shouldn't suffer for the sake of Christ. And that's why Paul stands up and says, dude, what are you doing? Where's your faith? Because what, what Paul says is the truth of the gospel. It's not shaping your love for the people around you. It's not shaping your view of suffering, nor is it controlling your fear. Do you see that? Peter, you stand condemned by the gospel. You're not living as if Jesus died for Jew and Gentile. And this is what I want to focus on, is this principle that Paul uses to confront Peter because it's what the New Testament does repeatedly to try and, well, to change us, to change stubborn people who are afraid. Because Paul confronts Peter's racist behavior, but he doesn't stand up and say, dude, knock it off. Just stop it. The Old Testament says you should welcome the stranger because you know what it was like to be a stranger in Egypt. Right? But he doesn't go to the law because you're not under law, you're under grace. So he's going to say in Romans. No, he confronts with the gospel and says, you need to work out the truth of the gospel in the situation here and repent. It's an authority. The gospel is a standard by which we are all called to live under by faith. Right? I mean, how do you confront and change the things in your life? Bad habits, addictions. I mean, do you just go back to the law and say, I just need to do this better and pray that God will forgive me for when I fail? Or just scream, stop it. There's a great skit, I can show it to you sometime, by Bob Newhart, who's a psychiatrist, who, and this lady comes in with all of her issues. And she lays out all of her fears, and it doesn't take very long. <laughs> and, and she looks at him, and he's like, all right, I have two words for you that I say to all my patients. And She's like, oh, this is great, this is great. And she said, do I need to write this down? He's like, you can if you want, but it's not too hard to remember. Are you ready? And she's talking about claustrophobia. She's talking about fear of dying, really heavy stuff. And all he does is look at her and says, stop it. <laughs> and everything she says beyond that, he just says, stop it. Knock it off. That's what we do. And Paul stands up and says, no, that's not how the Christian life works. We're called to live our lives in light of the truth of the gospel. Right, there's a Greek word here that will help us figure this out. I don't know what you're trying... In the ESV, it says walk and step with. Uh, in the NIV, it's, it's walking or living in line with. It's, it's the word orthopodeo. 
And we'll break these apart and I'll help you. It's a good illustration here. Um, Padeo, it's the word to walk. It's where we get the word podiatrist from. Right, so it's, it's saying, it's, it's just part of walking. And walking in the Bible is a metaphor for your whole life. Walk, walk following the Lord. I mean, your, your heart, your actions, your words, your thoughts, your deeds. I mean, Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And it's the way you walk. Right? And then ortho, it just means straight. You've heard of orthodontist, your teeth, you know, straighten out your teeth. Paul's put this, these two things together to say that Paul is, really has failed. He's failing to walk in a straight line according to the gospel. He's failed the gospel sobriety test. <laughs> he's, he's not living his life as if Christ died for him and now reigns for him or that he died for other people as well. So it's a standard. It's a new principle. It's, it's working out the grace of Christ as an authority in your life. You see, it's slightly different because it's saying God is now telling you how to live as somebody he's already accepted as, as your son, as his son. And it's grace in Christ. Because you have these truths that are always true, that you are a sinner and you are, you are fully loved despite the way you are. Simul justus et peccator. You're both justified at the same time and you're both a sinner. Right, so that means even now as I'm preaching, I'm preaching imperfectly. I pray imperfectly. I parent imperfectly. We all have, sin has worked its way in and through everything here in this world. And despite the way that we are in Christ, God loves us. That's the reality of the gospel in which we live. We are fully loved by God more than we can imagine all at the same time. That's what it means to be justified. So, if you combine that with what we said last week, it's just saying that we wear grace, and now we're called to grow under the clothes that we've been given. To, to live it out. That there is a path, there's, there's a way to live out the gospel by faith um, that affects your behavior. And so let's look at how Paul applies it to Peter. Because Paul doesn't stand up and say, stop being a racist, it's wrong, God's really going to get you if you don't stop. He, he uses the gospel, he, he corrects in the context of a relationship that's already there. Because one, he's pointing out that racism forgets that you are saved by grace. Peter, you aren't welcoming one another as Christ has welcomed you. And he goes on to say, God didn't really, God didn't accept you because you're Jewish, so why would you base your fellowship with the Gentiles on your own culture and race? You see that? He's working out the gospel and trying to get him to think about it. And so one commentator says it this way, that Peter knew perfectly well that faith in Jesus is the only condition God will have fellowship with sinners. But Peter is adding circumcision and these clean laws as an extra condition to have fellowship, and that's how he's con contradicting the gospel. He's adding to it. His behavior is doing that. And so that even in Peter's compassion, doing a good thing, there's still a sense of superiority 
forcing the Gentiles to look like him, and he's adding to the gospel. He's not living in light of that truth. And so here's the implication. This is what I want you to, to leave here thinking about, that all of life is meant to be lived in light of the truth of what Jesus has done on the cross and resurrection. That right now we are under the grace of Christ who confronts us with his truth. It's it's the reason that we don't get along with one another. It's it's always because we've made something or somebody more important in our lives than Jesus. We've added to the gospel. Maybe it's, sure, maybe it's something as obvious as skin color. Maybe it's having a clean house, just being perfect, our own, projecting our own expectations on other people, some good, some bad. It's adding to the gospel. All right, just give an example, time. The way cultures relate to each other by time, or don't relate, because <laughs> different cultures have a different sense of time. Right, it drives us Westerners crazy because we're punctual, and other cultures are not, by our standards. Right? You go to parts of Africa, you go to parts of Asia, people will show up one, two, three hours late, depending on where you are, and never even apologize for being late. And here, if you show up five minutes late, we feel like we need to apologize just to keep a friendship going. And so we mutter, and we interact with people different than us, you know, no wonder they don't get anything done. <laughs> it's, it's adding to the gospel it's making punctuality the sole basis of acceptance and welcome. It's just, just one example. We're called to live our lives in light of the truth of the gospel. I mean, think about how the New Testament talks about forgiveness. It doesn't just say, go forgive. It says, forgive as Christ forgave you. So if you're bitter and angry, that means you're not living your conduct, your heart, It's not believing the things that God has done for you. That's hard. Or hypocrisy. How do you stop being a hypocrite? One, we're going to go to Jesus and it will end, but before that. How do you stop pretending to be one person here and someone else, something different completely when you're with different people? You've got to think about the gospel. How Jesus was the same, consistent, even to death on a cross. He was faithful to God, crying out, my God, the God I want, even as God was abandoning him. You've got to think about these things until it melts your heart. You say, I want to be bold and courageous. Be faithful as he is faithful. You see that? It's working out the truth of the gospel. Or even suffering. We've got to talk to Peter about suffering. We're called to suffer for Christ's sake. And so the writer of the Hebrews is going to say, consider him who endured such hostility so you don't grow weak or faint-hearted. Saying, consider the one who suffered for you so that you might suffer like him. It's living your life in light of the gospel. This is how the old Baptist hymn writer, Joseph Swain, wrote. And he said, blessed are the eyes that see him, talking about Jesus. 
Blessed are the ears that hear his voice. Blessed are the souls that trust him and in him alone rejoice. Then his commandments become their happy choice. You see that? It's, it's living up and working out the reality that it is finished. God does delight in you. And applying that to every aspect of your life. And if that sounds overwhelming, that's why we have the church. <laughs> we need one another to work these things out. Because, right, you know, I'll conclude with this. We were talking about racism. The church's history, the history of the world shows us that whenever racial superiority showed up and snuck into the church, God raised up men and women who would be bold and courageous enough to stand up like Paul and say, you're not living out the faith that you claim to believe. Right. So Martin Luther King, Jr., the other Martin Luther right, from the 1960s. That's all he did in the South over and over and over again, boldly, prophetically. He was just saying, you're not living in light of the truths you came, claim to believe as Christians, that there are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a black, base black is significant on God's keyboard, he said. One day we will learn that. We will know that one day God made us to live together as brothers and respect the dignity and worth of every man. And all he was doing was calling Christians. Stand up for the truth of the gospel. Stand with your brothers. And that's what we're going to do here in a moment as we come to the table. As we drink the cup and eat the bread. We're seeing God who broke down walls so that we might eat together, applying the truth of the gospel to our love for one another <laughs> as we get to bear with one another. So let's pray as we get ready to do so. God, you just gave us a, a huge principle that may seem overwhelming to try and work it out itself out. And so I pray for those of us here who... Well, we all have some sense of favoritism, Lord. I mean, things that we find more important than we should, and it divides us. So I ask as we eat together, um, as we drink together, as we commemorate and proclaim the Lord's death, you would elevate the gospel in our hearts that we might embrace people different than us and that Jesus would get the glory. Now, use your gospel like to, to, to permeate into the depths of the darkness of our sin, that we might look more and more like him, to, be, to look like the sons that you've already called us. <laughs> so help us to grow in your grace as we eat together. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to come, come to the table here. I'm going to ask the elders to come forward. As I've been here, traditionally, we've um, served you as elders. But just because we're lacking a musician, we're going to do it a little differently, which I'm told is, has been tradition in Hope Church before us. So you're going to come forward uh, in a procession to come and take the bread, take the cup from one of our elders here, and then we're going to go back.